welcome to Harlow on Healthcare. I'm David Harlow, and I invite you to join me by my virtual hearth as I sit down with healthcare leaders to discuss building the future of healthcare. Today, my guest is Paul Schrempf, a partner in Profits Healthcare Practice, part of its North American leadership team, and a big believer in human empathy and behavior change. On the empathy front, Paul, we might need to induct you into the Pink Sox tribe at a later date. But for starters, I'd like to ask if you could introduce us to your practice, to Profit. What does Profit do? Profit is is really built around generating uncommon growth, disruptive growth, transformative growth. You know, we're the organization that you call where things just aren't moving at the clip that you want. And in healthcare, that's usually talked about quite blatantly as growth. And sometimes it's more around like patient volume or, or, or reaching and maximizing your impact in the community. We do a variety of things there. I obviously, as you mentioned, head up our healthcare practice along with a couple other colleagues and work with a number of other leaders in our organization, what we call across our practice areas, where it's either helping with business model innovation, product experience design, organization and culture, but trying to find out what's holding an organization back. And as you mentioned, I lean a lot into this empathy area because businesses just aren't these buildings and factories or beds or something that has no face or name. They're, they're all run by people. And just as we as consumers or individuals think about our thoughts, feelings, attitudes, perceptions, and a lot of those drive our behaviors from day to day, that doesn't change when you walk in the door of your employer and you're a VP of whatever, director of whatever, et cetera. So when you are looking to get more out of your organization, what you're saying is you need to get more out of your people. And to do that, you have to be highly empathetic around kind of what they're looking for, what motivates them. We often talk about change. We as humans are not wired for change. That's not a natural feeling. We actually have a lot of aversion to it. I was going to say we resist it more than anything else. We resist it. I mean, I'm not a biologist or in biology, but there's discomfort with change. And we have to know why we're doing it. And then that empathy also translates on either side of the fence for an organization internally that I was just touching on earlier, but also with your consumers, customers, et cetera, because there's a change or an understanding that you want to intersect with. So this, this game around understanding people is at the root of really everything that we do and why empathy and kind of human understanding is so important in all of it. You know, we often think about systems and business processes and sometimes tend to forget that you know none of this works without the people and the people are sometimes an afterthought which of course is a mistake and you're you're putting this front and center yeah absolutely it's i i have so many different analogs depending on the topic if you're just going into the topic of transformation that profit does a lot of work in and you think about the conversations that's happening, you know, in the C-suite or the BVP and above level, there's ambition there. There's a need to change. There's a need to grow. But more often than not, when we work down in the organization, there are plenty of great people that love what they do. 
And if they could come in at nine o'clock and leave at five o'clock and do a darn good job and then go to their kid's soccer game or coach whatever, that's how they define their lives. So when you're asking somebody like that to do something different, you'll get responses like, well, that's not the job I took. That's not the job I want. Um, And there's a little bit of disconnect between leadership, which has a little bit of a different wiring around uh, ambition and change and doing something different with the body of the organization that that may want more predictability. And, And neither one's right or wrong, but as we work with our organizations around transformation and change, not everybody wants change. So how do you get the organization to change, acknowledging that you've got a mixed batch of attitudes and priorities and incentives within the body of the organization? Is that doable? I mean, sort of famously, the sort of the Jack Welch model of management, which is maybe now discredited, <laughs> is, you know, you just sort of call the herd every year, right? One way or another. I, I assume that's not what you're talking about doing. Not necessarily. I, I think there is... Uh, how do I put this? There, I usually view groups into three. There are, um, you know, you go through a transformation and where you're seeing a business stall. And it's funny that you mentioned Jack Welch because uh, you, you've got the whole topic of GE. GE is now being broken apart and sold into different areas. And GE has been around for over 100 years. And when you look at that, they, they've gone through transformations sometimes more proactively, but at some point transformation will come to you. And that's largely what's happened with GE right now is it kind of hit some ruts two or three years ago, which is causing some of the divestitures. They could have stayed in front of it, probably would have still resulted in some divestitures, but you do need to change and evolve because the world changes and evolves. To be extreme, we're no longer riding horses around. We're driving cars. I'm sure there are some wonderful companies back, you know, at the turn of the 19th and 20th century going, I'm going to keep selling saddles. That's great, but your market's going to go down. And you have to change and evolve. Therefore, you need to be transforming and you need to identify who in the organization that want to go on that journey with you. You can also attract a number of people that find that exciting. And there's also going to be people in that organization where where the organization's going and where they want to take their career are no longer aligning. And that changes as well. But there is no such thing as an organization that stands still and survives 10, 20, 30 plus years, let alone 100, which is the age of many of the organizations that we work with. Right. And you're reminding me of driving through a town in central Massachusetts that refers to itself as the buggy whip capital of the world, <laughs> which is like not really as appealing as maybe it once was. Yeah. <laughs> we do need to keep up. We do need to change. We do need to transform. And healthcare is sometimes seen as one of those markets Mm-hmm. where change is harder than others. Right. Do you see that as being the case? Absolutely. I think there is this conflict between the clinical side of healthcare and the business or consumer side of healthcare. And we tend to approach innovation and progress in the industry of healthcare with a single lens that has a clinical bend to it. So what I mean by that are things like the the Hippocratic Oath that doctors take, which is do no harm. The way that we develop clinical drugs where we do not want to have any adverse events and we don't want to have anything bad. So we are 
incredibly risk averse in the clinical space for very, very, very good reasons. But then we take that and we put that into business processes and there's a conflict there because if you go to any business class or you work in any business largely outside of healthcare, you talk about risk. You need to take risk. You need to kind of put yourself out there. The more risk that you're comfortable with and the better that you execute it, the healthier and stronger the business that you're in. So you have a clinical side, which is do no harm and pursue what I'll call zero risk. And you, that infects the area of taking um, smart risk on the business side. So you're just seeing slower innovation. And we often have to have really good conversations with healthcare organizations and going around going, are we making a business decision right now? Or are we making a clinical decision right now? Um, if we change the way we do online scheduling on the website, do we have to take that through clinical review? No. Try some changes, see how that affects the cons consumer experience, and tweak it as you go. But a non-clinical product development should follow product development that we see in other categories and not follow clinical drug development. But you see that clash, and I believe that's what's slowing down much of the innovation in healthcare in terms of the experience side. Because on the clinical side, I can't say we're not innovative. I think we've had some great clinical innovations. But when we think about healthcare, most of us think about the consumer experience, and it is dramatically lagging other industries because we see that, that mindset and that posture around prove it to me and digging people's heels in, whereas you're seeing other industries moving a lot more faster, taking on more risk and moving just making, and making better progress. If, if your experience is anything like mine, if I ever say to somebody in a social setting that I work in the healthcare space, mm -hmm. I get an earful, usually, you know, a complaint about their interaction with their health plan or a, totally. a, some sort of prior auth totally. <laughs> issue uh, that they're running into, right? Bingo. And, and what you're, you're mentioning is, is you're, you, we immediately go to the process and the consumer experience. I don't, often hear people complain about the quality of care. We can always be improving the quality of care, but here in 2022, it's a great time to be alive. We've got some great innovation, um, but we get upset when we get a bill from our provider because the anesthesiologist was out of network or no, we can't transfer my medical records from one spot to another. Why am I using a fax? Everything that we tend to complain about being hyperbolic, most things are not clinical products. They're experiencing consumer products. And we can be moving much faster, much more agile if we just do what other industries do. But it's to, to, to our earlier conversation, it's, it's more cultural and human than anything that's actually rational if you think about it. Right. So you're saying a moment ago, talking about the differentiation between taking rational business risk and at the same time understanding that there's going to be less of a tolerance for risk on the clinical side of the house. Mm -hmm. Over time, there's been different philosophies of who should sit in the corner office in a healthcare organization. Mm -hmm. Does that need to be a doc? So I'm wondering where you fall on that it's, divide, if there a, is a divide. It's a good question. Because I can think of many physician leaders that are great business leaders. 
And to me, it's less about the documentation of where you got your education and whether or not you're bringing the right business acumen, uh, customer centricity acumen into that space. But there's a separation for me between the degree versus your skill. And we as humans can only be so talented if I were to put it that way. I think there's an article I read a while back that said brain surgeons and rocket scientists are no smarter than anybody else. They just happen to be deep in that area. And I think all of us uh, have our T-shapes, but we can only learn and be talented in so many things. And I think where we see things go a little awry, if I were to kind of take the bait on your question and make sure we have a, a fun dialogue, is if you're a leading oncologist or a leading surgeon and just saying, because I'm talented in the medical arena, I should be running an organization, I think that's a big jump. I would never say because I'm deep in, say, marketing or being a dad that I should just be automatically anointed to take another role. We saw that immediately happen with Haven Health you know, very talented people, physicians in the leadership role, but they've never built an organization from the ground up. And that's what they're being asked to do. So to me, it's less around the title, but I do think there is a bias that the physicians or physician leaderships, because they're physicians and we put them on a pedestal, for many reasons we should because they do save lives, that because they save lives, they can run a good business or they know how consumerism works. Uh, That is and isn't true. If you're just tuning in, this is Harlow on Healthcare, coming to you on Healthcare Now Radio. I'm David Harlow, and my guest today is Paul Shrimp at Profit. Paul, we were talking a moment ago about physician leadership in business or in large clinical organizations, and I know you've worked with organizations large and small. In recent years, I would say, I've seen more and more examples of folks coming out of medical school and mm-hmm. deciding, you know what, I'm not going to go into clinical practice. I'm going to build an app. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going mm-hmm. to build a company. Mm-hmm. And I wonder where do folks like that fall into this discussion of clinical leadership and the, and the need for clinical leadership on the technology side of the house, right? Because we don't necessarily just want folks building apps because they think it'll solve a problem that their grandma had with the healthcare Mm -hmm. system, right? So having someone who's gone through medical school is one step closer to that, but they haven't necessarily had deep experience with the system. Do you see that as, you know, sort of the other end of the spectrum in terms of problematic approaches to leadership? Um, yeah, I think there's there's give and takes because that, that's where I was hedging my comments earlier is I was actually keeping some of those in mind. Okay. And if I just take University of California, San Francisco's medical school and Stanford Medicine, I think I'm somewhere in the ballpark where 20% of those graduates will not ever practice. They go into a startup. And I know a number of them and they're really brilliant people. And they know how to be thinking about businesses for the, for the most part. So I can't say that because they haven't been deep into practice, it, le- it makes them less effective as a business manager and, and then mm-hmm. vice versa. I also know a lot of people that were in practice that left practice to start something up or they were frustrated in the way that they were practicing 
that they left to address why they were frustrated and come up with some great solutions. So it's kind of a, a tapestry of things. I would argue that for those physicians that are choosing to go into the technology route, product development route, the way many of them would articulate that would say, in a given day, I might be able to see eight to 10 patients or save X number of lives. But if I'm able to think through another care platform or an innovation, my ability to help patients as a whole may be in, you know, a hundred or a couple hundred a year to thousands or millions. And that's what's motivating them is how do I take my medical knowledge and scale it to help a lot of people, even though I'm not practicing day to day, but there's a number of dimensions in which people kind of think about that, that are graduating with a medical degree and choosing whether to go into practice or into more of the innovation in business side of healthcare. So we're talking about transformation, maybe across a couple of different dimensions. You, you talk about in your practice, organizational transformation, if you will, mm-hmm. and we're also talking about your client base, so to speak, which is involved in healthcare transformation, right? Mm-hmm. And if they're doing things right, they're transforming the way in which healthcare is delivered, measured, paid for, experienced. So when I say transformation, what does that mean to you? And, and can you give us some sort of concrete examples? Yeah, for sure. Transformation can happen big and small, but the separation we make is you should be always wanting to be doing things better. You should always want to be innovating. And that could be launching brand new products and services in dramatic things, or it could just be a tackling a new process. It could be how are we more innovative in how we do social media? It could be as narrow as that. Or how do we think about running a department differently? So there's small pockets of transformation. There's big pockets. And the other aspect is, as I mentioned, you should always be wanting to do things better. You know, that's called evolution. That's called innovation. But when you are setting up processes to always be doing continual improvement and those processes are no longer going to get you to where you need to be and there's more substantive things holding that you back, whether that be processes, it could be talent, it could be a business model, it could be a variety of things where the fundamental infrastructure is becoming a hindrance to your ability to grow, that becomes transformation. When you are selling plastic and metal and that turns into a smart device, and then you realize that you can't sell that device anymore, but you could sell the digital service You may be wanting to pivot from selling that plastic and metal to giving that away and then selling the software subscription. So you go from more of a transactional uh, plastic and metal product approach to more of a software as a service or data as a service. And we're seeing a lot of interesting transformation there. And I'll, I'll, I'll dive into the data space is there's a ton of data in healthcare. It's all locked up in silos and everybody claims to have some. So you might have a physician group that has the most rural hospice data. You might have a manufacturer of hospital beds that has sensing technology that can collect information about a patient passively. How do you think about that? So you have these organizations where their core business model is creating what they call in the industry data exhaust. Well, how do you sell data? How do you think about that? Uh, Because it's not just having it and selling it in raw batches. 
How is it integrated? How, how do you keep up the governance and the structure around that? Do you layer in software? Is there consulting? But you start going into these different paths that as new opportunities emerge, your business model might change. Clearly, as part of a idea of monetizing digital exhaust, we have to be talking about privacy concerns. And that's mm-hmm. sort of more top of mind than ever these days. And I imagine that becomes a hot topic of conversation when trying to promote mm-hmm. ideas such as these or sort of capturing those ideas, right? Yeah, for sure. And this is where there's a that culture clash that happens again is the fear of something getting out. And I kind of have that inflection in my voice because I think everybody who's listening to this right now needs to ask the last time they heard about a healthcare data scandal. I can't think of one. It, it happens in pockets. We do have the HIPAA policy that protects that. But we don't really have a security and privacy issue with healthcare data. I think we're really good at it. The governance that we have in place uh, around that is is really good. It's taken seriously. And I find it, I'll do micro for a bit and I'll go macro. I really don't care what people do with my healthcare data. I know that's related to me. I know I'm not alone, but I'm also not the masses. So I find it odd when I go into a doctor's office and they have me sign a form, one that they won't share my data I find that funny because I'm like, why should I sign a form for something you're not supposed to do anyways? But I often kind of entertain myself by asking, going, what if I want you to share my data? What if I want you to give away all of my data to do better research, to, be, to deliver better innovation and make my life or, or, or the health of the world better? And the poor you know, admin at the front of the desk kind of looks at me like three heads. But, but a lot of people are very comfortable giving away the data. We do it all the time. We accept cookies on our websites. We provide information for better service. So this exchange of data for value happens everywhere we could be doing it. So that's in the micro bit. On the macro bit, there's plenty of ways to protect that. I mentioned the uh, HIPAA laws in terms of privacy or, or, or the portability aspect. And there's a world around identified data and de-identified data. And um, I just riffed on this on my personal podcast on microdosing as we talked about data map. And you can look them up. They're a quite great organization that's in the business of linking together disparate data sets, preserving privacy and patient identifiable data uh, where you need to or linking it where it's not. So the controls and ability to move data around, link it and protect patient privacy exist in spades. But for some reason, people still are afraid of it. But we really have never had an issue. Financial services does, does this all the time. Uh, we do our taxes with TurboTax. We use Mint. A lot of intuitive solutions are around that. But, but our financial data kicks around all the time. Now, granted, if my identity stolen, the insurance can be paid for my bank, et cetera, where you know, there's something different around a financial risk versus a health risk. But all this stuff is navigable, and it's been done in other industries. And we've got processes in place. So this fear of the misuse of healthcare data is real and should be recognized, but I think it's overly inflated in terms of uh, something to be worried about. Okay, I hear you. I think we might disagree on the degree to which that's an issue. Oh, but, please, uh, please say more. Please say more. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we've seen these are maybe not everyday cases, but unfortunately, mm-hmm. I think they could be more common. The phishing scammers who say, "Oh, we don't go after healthcare." Well, mm-hmm. sometimes they do intentionally or not, yeah. and there have been at least a handful of cases where we can tie patient death to uh, ransomware attacks. 
certainly not an everyday occurrence, but if it does occur, it's a significant one. Certainly the cross-linking of health data and financial data, you know, if the way in is through a healthcare system, it leads out through a financial system, can lead to identity theft and financial damages as well as healthcare damages. All that said, mm-hmm. there is, of course, value to data mobility, interoperability, use of de-identified data or anonymized data, depending mm-hmm. on where you live, in building new tools and doing good things. There's still just a lot of concern. And I think the, the healthcare world is feeling the effects of broader trends towards greater regulation mm-hmm. in the face of things like, quote unquote, the surveillance economy and surveillance capitalism, recent court decisions in the U.S. and elsewhere. Anyway, I mean, yeah, no, there's, I, I think we're largely saying a mm-hmm. lot of the same thing is I don't want mm-hmm. my comments to come off dismissing that we don't need to worry mm-hmm. about security yeah. and privacy. Okay. I, I'm saying where we're at in a continued push because that's a very active area is key, but this, you know, fear and innovation don't really coexist. You know, I think it's innovation with responsibility uh, coincides. And then you're highlighting a number of things that kind of um, is also a fascinating aspect in healthcare, which is, at least in the U.S., the, the capitalistic society that we have, and I'm very much pro-capitalism, uh, but we do tend to let the free market try to de- de- determine a lot of things. And you're raising questions around, like, wh- what's the role in government? Should they be more or less involved? Which is a whole another can of worms that we probably don't need to get into, but all all very valid. But I would, I would agree with everything that you mentioned. Okay, great. Well, Paul, to wrap things up, I'm going to ask, if you were to wake up tomorrow and find yourself five years in the future, what's one thing in healthcare that you would hope or maybe expect to find has changed drastically? There's the hope for better consumer and patient centricity. There's the hope that there's an organization that truly can help me or an individual navigate healthcare. Uh, we talk about a healthcare continuum, but there is no continuum, and nobody really seems to want to own the continuum. We have things like you know financial literacy on the financial services side, but we don't really talk about health literacy. It's very difficult to navigate. But for an organization, we're seeing some digitally native player, players emerge that makes navigating and understanding healthcare better. I don't see the hospital being at the center anymore. I see it being a node. We're even talking about that now. Is like, how do we keep people out of the hospital more often? And the question sure. is, having a hospital now, is that a risk or an asset? And what's the role of the future of a hospital? But but somebody owning, I'll steal some of Nick Patel's thinking from Prisma Health, uh, who's the head digital innovation officer there, that somebody just owns the digital continuum. Because if somebody can take ownership of that, and I've got, I can pick up my phone and I can go to a single app that represents a bigger platform, that can tell me where to go, what to do, and how to do it. That's what I hope for in five years. We probably won't get there. Hopefully, make strides. But I don't want to be going to 10 different locations. I don't want another app after I have 20 and still navigate it because it's no longer it's no longer physical, it's digital. But somebody that can really own patient navigation, that front door and the patient continuum, whether that be a payer, a provider, or somebody else, who knows where it's going to come from. Uh, but that's really what I th- would love to see in the next five years. And 
hoping for as a professional and hoping for as an individual. Okay. We'll be looking for that. Thank you, Paul. David, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. You have been listening to Harlow on Healthcare. Join us at healthcarenowradio.com. Let's continue the conversation on building the future of healthcare together at hashtag Harlow on HC. I'm David Harlow, keeping the fire going and holding a seat open for you. Until next time.